Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word, which means that we are to be in right relationship with the Lord, which is described in the scripture as walking by the spirit, walking according to the spirit, not walking according to the flesh or the sin nature or walking by the sin nature or walking in darkness. So if necessary, we need to confess sin. We need to always keep short accounts, but we need to make sure that we're walking in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying that ongoing dynamic of our fellowship, our rapport with him, so that as we learn the word of God, God the Holy Spirit can use it to make us uh, mature, that we may serve the Lord more effectively. Let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's such a glorious privilege we have every time we come together to a fellowship around your word, to enjoy our fellowship with you as we learn what you have uh, said to us, as we learn what you have taught us. Father, we, may we be challenged as we study your word today that as we think through the implications of our walk with you in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation that is hostile to you that hated the Lord Jesus Christ and will hate those who follow him. Father, we know that in this nation that we live in, we have been blessed for 300 years of of not having to deal with, with opposition and hostility, even 400 years. And Father, but now it's necessary for us to be strengthened in this area because there are so many forces that are hostile to Christianity, hostile to the Bible, hostile to what believers uh, hold to and, and their application. And Father, we need to learn how to respond in grace and in kindness, but not wavering, being strong in our faith. Help us to understand these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in First Peter, and we are in the concluding section of this epistle, which began in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. As we go forward, we're going to see that a major theme of this epistle has been dealing with suffering, and specifically that which is the result of our Christian testimony of our walk with the Lord when we are, as Peter says in verse 14, we are reproached. That is ridiculed. We are made light of. Uh, for the name of Christ. What exactly does that mean? So that's one thing we're going to look at today is what does it mean in the name of? What's in a name? 
And then we'll see that the language all through this section as it mirrors that of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following is very similar also to the epistle of James, and it focuses our attention on to future evaluation. It's very clear that both Peter and James are not only addressing the same group of Jewish background believers in the uh, early first century, I think James is earlier, I think he's in around 40, Peter's a little bit later, but they are dealing with these these believers, these Christians who are facing persecution, not only from within the Jewish community, but also uh, the Gentile uh, community. And so as we, we will see, Peter and James use very similar vocabulary, and it's clear from both of them that they are connecting how we face and handle adversity, trouble, opposition, persecution in this life to our future destiny uh, that's determined at our evaluation judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. So last time as we got into studying this, I pointed out three things to key principles just to keep in mind. First of all, Paul, everybody goes through trouble. There's some people you think they've got a wonderful life, a blessed life, that they haven't gone through any serious adversity. It just seems that everything in their life is wonderful. But I find that as I get to know people, that's generally not true. I don't know anyone who has not faced uh, trouble in this life. So we know that everybody faces adversity. They face bad circumstances. They face failure and heartache in this life to one degree or another, and God uses that. That's the strength of the of a Judeo-Christian faith is that things in this life are not random, they're not accidents, they're not without purpose, that even though we may not understand or perceive the purpose of God, we know that God has a plan and that, as Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. They're not all good, but God uses them to mature us, and to conform us to the image of his son. Secondly, I pointed out a general principle that is often not held by many people today. They live in an ideal, idealistic world where they think that everything can be perfected because people are basically good. And they, they just can't handle opposition very well, and they can't handle it when there's real suffering and adversity. But the Bible teaches that the human race is corrupt because of sin. We are a corrupt people living with corrupt people in a corrupt world. And as a result of that, we're going to make bad decisions. The people close to us are going to make bad decisions. The people who affect our world, our employers, our employees, our uh, political representatives, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents are going to make bad decisions. And they're going to have uh, drastic effects on our lives. And so we suffer as a result of our own bad decisions and as a result of the bad decisions of others. But we have hope, and the only hope to survive and to flourish in the midst of a uh, corrupt world with corrupt people around us is to have a hope and reality that is based on something that is totally outside of the creation on someone, a person who is over everything, who is eternal, who is righteous, who has solved the problem of sin and corruption, and who eventually will defeat it and remove it from his uh, creation. And that is the hope of Christianity, and the, this corruption was dealt with 
at the cross, understanding what Jesus Christ did. This is why there's so much opposition to him, is because the, the, the very reality of Jesus on the cross is a statement that people are sinners, and that is one of those truths that Paul talks about in Romans 1, 18 to 20, that they are suppressing an unrighteousness. They just hate it. When they their sinfulness, the fact that they are truly evil and their good deeds are brought to light as still being corrupt because they come from a sin nature, and they just just hate that. So we come to this conclusion, these three verses at the beginning of the conclu- conclusion in First uh, Peter four twelve to fourteen. The conclusion itself goes all the way through the end of chapter five, verse fourteen. But here Peter says, "Beloved, do not think it." A strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice. So instead of being surprised and negative and depressed and discouraged, we are to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. We'll have to spend some time talking about that when we get there. That when his glory is revealed, so that's future at the uh, and it can be at one of two times for the believer in the church age, his glory is revealed when we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord and at the rapture. And then there is the judgment seat of Christ. When his glory is revealed that you may also be glad with exceeding joy in contrast to first John, who warns that we can be a, a shame, have shame at the appearance of the Lord. And then he goes on to say that, if you are reproached, and that word reproach has the idea of being ridiculed, made light of, or, or discredited. Uh, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. He, his significance and centrality to everything in the universe is made evident by our lives. So it is, I pointed out the last couple of lessons or two things that Peter states here. The first is that facing suffering for our belief in Jesus should not be a surprise. And I want to develop that a little bit. He says, don't, don't, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is upon you. And this should not surprise us because of what the scripture says. We can go back to Matthew chapter 10. Now, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples who are going out uh, to uh, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to Israel at that particular time. And it, what he says has implications for the future. And in that, he says, and you will be hated, very strong word, you will be hated by all for. And what we have there is a Greek construction, dia plus the accusative, which indicates cause, the reason for something, because of my name, literally. It doesn't say for my name's sake. It says literally because of my name because of who I am and we need to understand this how many times we're told in scripture first uh, Peter 4 uh, 4:14 we're reproached for the name of Jesus we are hated Matthew 10:22 by all because of my name Jesus says and then in John chapter 15, we look at the this passage, which is in the middle of one of these great 
great sections of the Gospel of John called the Upper Room Discourse that begins in John 13 when Jesus is celebrating the Passover, what is commonly referred to as the Last Supper, but it's a Passover meal the night before he goes to the cross, and he begins teaching his disciples during that Passover meal. This develops on into John chapter 14, and then John chapter 15, he continues teaching them as they are on the way to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and this section concludes in John 16 and is followed by a prayer in John 17 that is typically described as a high priestly prayer. All of this is very important because many times in this section, as Jesus is teaching his disciples about what they can expect after the cross, what they can expect in the age to come, it's really a primer on the what will take place in the coming church age. He says to them, if the world hates you, that is, if the world system is the people who are allied with the thinking of the world, and that's the idea here is the world has a philosophical system to explain life uh, without taking into account anything that God says or rejecting most of it. If the world hates you, he says to his disciples, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, when he's talking to the 11, because uh, Judas Iscariot is not with him anymore, when he's talking to them, I think it's important to remember that all but one of them died for their faith. The only one who lived to a ripe old age and died of natural causes was the Apostle John. But he too was persecuted for his faith. Under the Emperor Domitian, he was exiled to the island of Patmos for a number of years, which is where he wrote. We know that's where he was when he wrote the, the, uh, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book in the New Testament. But uh, many think that he was there also when he wrote at least one of the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, and possibly even uh, the Gospel of John. So he says to, to his these 11, knowing that 10 of them are going to die because they are believers. They're going to die for their faith. They're going to be martyrs. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And what we've seen is to handle adversity, persecution, any kind of difficulty in life, we have to know something. We have to understand God's purpose, God's plan. We have to know the promises of God and claim the promises of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, if you were of the world, if you were the product of the world system, if you thought like unbelievers think, if you excluded God from your from your thinking and from your understanding, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world just loves others who hate God and who hate Jesus. They have a common enemy as as earth dwellers. That's a term that John uses in Revelation to describe the unbelievers on the earth during the time of the tribulation, is that they find a common cause because whether they are, uh, whether they're a Buddhist or atheist, whether they are Hindu or Muslim, whether they are uh, a secular Jew, an atheist Jew, or a Jew following the following the Torah as a means of salvation, whatever it is, they find cause to hate those who stand for Christ. That sooner or later, if you stand for biblical truth and biblical values, then you will run against 
up against family members, against friends, against uh, sometimes as a pastor you'll run against people in a church. I know of so many cases where as a pastor became more and more biblical and taught the word more and more that he is opposed by other believers who are products of the world, who think in terms of the world's values and the world's system. And the world loves its own. But even if you're a believer and you're a worldly believer, the world will turn against you because you are a believer. So you need to get your thinking straight in terms of the word of God. So Jesus goes on and says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So uh, we're told in John fifteen eighteen, the world hates you. We're told in John fifteen nineteen that the world hates you. And then we're, the, 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 we're going to be reminded that the world hated Jesus. And in John fifteen twenty, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they, they hated Jesus, they will hate us. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute us. If they kept my word, that's a contrast. To keep his word refers to those who are, are believers, who are obeying the word, keeping the word, keeping his commandments. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, in the world, there are those who are of the world, but there are also those who are not of the world, and they are believers, and they, they are described here as those who keep his word, and they will uh, be supportive of those who are also believers. So that's what John fifteen twenty says. But then he says in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. And then that's where we have this same phrase that we found over in, in Matthew chapter 10, that this is all these things they will do because of my name. What is in a name? What is this all about? And so we have to ask this question. Why is this so important? What is in a name? Now, it's interesting. This is really sort of a segue or uh, rabbit trail from, not a segue, but just a rabbit trail from what uh, we're, we're the primary focus of the passage is. But as I got into Matthew 10, looking at these verses and the significance of this phrase, uh, uh, being persecuted, being hated because of Jesus' name, it dovetails with something we're going to be teaching and going through in the next two or three weeks in our study on worship in John chapter 2, and that has to do with the name of God. So what is this that the Bible emphasizes about the name of God and the name of Jesus? So first thing, we have to recognize that names in the Bible are more than simple tags or ID markers. They're more than just some sort of label. Now, there is a philosophical system that came out of the Middle Ages called nominalism, and the word nominal is related to the concept of a noun or a name. Uh, When you think about the cases in grammar, the subject case is, is called the nominative. It's, it's the naming who performs the action of the verb. 
And so uh, in nominalism, the idea was that the names of things had absolutely nothing to do with the essence of them. They were All they were is just labels, and that runs contrary to what Scripture says because even from the very beginning, when God names Adam, those name his name means something, and there are other names. and 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 Adam, as he names the animals, it's when he observes them and he gives them names that say something about their nature, or, or their essence. One of the, one of the most um, uh, interesting murder mystery books that I read, and most people don't understand the irony that's going on in the book, and it's a difficult book for most most people to read, somewhat esoteric, was a book, book that was translated from Italian back in the 80s. They made it a movie with Sean Connery called In the Name of the Rose. And it's difficult to read through. At the time I read it, I was working on a, a degree, a, a master's degree in philosophy and actually studying medieval philosophy and studying Latin. So I was working my way. A lot of quotes in the book from Latin. You really have to have something of an education to appreciate it. But when you read it, there's no mention of anything called Rose. There's no mention of that title. And the main character in the book that's played by, by Sean Connery is a nominalist, and he plays kind of a Sherlock Holmes type of character, but all through this murder mystery, it's have, it, it, there's a lot of stuff going on in there that's all related uh, to philosophical systems and philosophical arguments, and it's really interesting. Of course, none of that's in the movie. The movie's a lot more fun to, to watch than the book is to read. But in nominalism, the name has, of something has nothing to do with its essence. And so the title of the book, In the Name of the Rose, has absolutely nothing to do with anything that goes on in the book. That's just the irony. That's the play on words. And that's the little pun that Umberto Eco chose when he titled the book. And so unless you understand these little things and the philosophy that just goes right past most people. But the Bible uses names to indicate the essence of someone or the essence uh, of something. And so we look at things like the names of Abraham. And he, initially he is introduced to us as Avram. Uh, Av is the name, is the Hebrew word for father. Avram means exalted father. But then as God makes a covenant with Abraham by uh, Genesis uh, chapter 17, promises that he's going to have a, a, a descendants more numerable than the stars in heaven, uh, then God changes his name to Avraham, which means the father of a multitude. And so his name indicates something of him. So when you hear the name Abraham, if you understand Hebrew, you understand the story, then immediately what should come to mind is this promise of God in relationship to the descendants of Abraham. Well, Abraham's grandson is born. He's a twin. He's born a second. Uh, as the twins are born, his older by seconds uh, brother is Esau, and, and as he comes out of the womb, he is grabbing a, a hold of Esau's heel, and so he is named Yaakov, 
and Yaakov means uh, literally the meaning of the word is heel, and it came, came to mean someone who is grabbing at the heel of others or trying to supplant someone or get ahead of them, usually by taking advantage or using deceitful means. And so the name of Jacob is Yaakov, and that's important in understanding the whole story of Jacob's life. He's always trying to get what is what really is 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 his and God will give it to him but he's trying to do it his way and he uses uh, cunning and deceit in order to get uh, accomplish God's will the wrong way and so it's a long time before he finally comes to understand the promise of God and that he needs to do God's will God's way and by this time he is going to have his name changed by God from Yaakov, indicating a deceitful person trying to get ahead, a supplanter, to the name Israel, one who uh, contends with God or perseveres or endures with God. And so Israel, the name when, when Israel is often referred to as Jacob in the Bible, when they're, usually when it's referred to as Jacob, that means they're not in obedience to God, but then when he talks, calls them Israel, that relates to their positive spiritual character. So the names have significance. And then, of course, we know the name of Jesus, Yeshua, from the Hebrew word Yesha, meaning, meaning to save or to deliver, and the promise of the angel that he was to be named uh, Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. So names mean something in the Bible. So when you have these statements that we are reproached because of Jesus' name, we are hated for Jesus' name, we are reviled for Jesus' name, what does that mean? So second point is we need to understand from background this idea of the name of God. One of those places where my study on for Tuesday night dovetailed with my study here is this interesting concept in Exodus chapter three, thirteen, and fourteen. We have this conversation that is recorded between uh, God and Moses. So you might want to turn there. You should underline these verses in your Bible because they're very important and they're going to they come up here and there uh, as significant. It's interesting how certain episodes take place and so here we have Moses he is uh, has escaped from Egypt at this point he's living in uh, Midian with his father-in-law Jethro and he's out taking care of the sheep and for 40 years God is teaching him humility and he is a nobody he's just a shepherd which was looked down upon and then one day as he is out with his flocks he is near Horeb which is Mount Sinai and he sees this bush that appears to be on fire, but it is not being consumed by the flame. And so he turns aside to look at it, and uh, we are told that this is God who is making an appearance, in this, and God speaks to him from the bush. And in verse 6 we read, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, I made the point in the in the series on worship on Tuesday night that we have so many different hymns and things where people say, oh, I just want to see Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, show yourself to me, things like that. And, and every time we see God or Jesus appearing, 
uh, apart from the incarnation to people, it's 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 not a good thing. They are afraid, and that's what we see here. And so, so Moses recognizes that he is in the holy presence. He is in the presence of God, and so God tells him that because you are in this place where I am, take your shoes off and show show respect, which is what he does. And then God is going to call him to his mission and tell him that he's going to be the deliverer. And so Moses is the reluctant savior of the people, and he says to God, okay, how am I going to prove? When I show up and I tell the people that you sent me, they're going to say, well, how do we know God really sent you? All kinds of quacks come along and say God told them to do this and to do that, and God sent them here, or God sent them there. How do we know this is real? How do you know we know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really appeared to you? You're just uh, some uh, murderer who's the son of the uh, adopted son of the Pharaoh, so why should we believe you? And so M- Moses says to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And and because this verse is not understand, understood, especially by people who doubt the veracity of the scriptures, there's all kinds of silliness that is, is stated here, and they don't understand the idiom, uh, what is his name? They're not asking what by what is he called? Because if you look at, at, at Genesis, there is clear reference throughout Genesis to Yahweh, the sacred tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, or yod Hey vav Hey, which is from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be or to exist. And so they, they claim that all of this was just written by Moses and, and, and he just wrote it back there. And so you can't really trust what he says. He's just writing propaganda in, in Genesis and, and they really didn't know anything about God. And some people even say Moses sort of invented this at this particular time. But that's because they're ignorant of Hebrew idiom and they, they don't look for a clear answer to this this particular question so they're going to say well what is his name and so we recognize too that that abraham clearly used the name of yahweh many times but in genesis 22 after he is is uh, relieved of not sacrificing isaac god provides a substitute by the ram and there's a sacrifice what does Abraham title God at that point. Yahweh Yireh, uh, that the Lord provides. So he clearly na- understands that the name of Yahweh, he knows that God is called Yahweh. That is his personal name. But here, Yahweh is going to reveal something new about the meaning of his name and something new about his character. And so he says to Moses, I am who I am. This comes off of the basic word to be or to exist. I I am, I am, I am the self-existent one. I exist because I exist. It's that idea. I am the self-existent one. And thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is new information about the significance of the name of God as it reflects something about his character, 
which was previously unknown. When we look back on Genesis, we see that that even from uh, Genesis chapter 4, there's reference to this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord. In Genesis 12, 8, as Abraham has moving through this land that God has promised him, he comes from the north to the south. He's traveled down from Syria and Haran, and he comes down and he enters into the hill country of Samaria. And the first place he stops is Shechem, and he builds an altar there. And uh, he calls on the name of the Lord, and he moves to Bethel. And here he builds an altar, and it says he calls on the name of the Lord. What does that mean to call on the name of the Lord? We have to understand what this phrase means when it talks about the name of the Lord. What's the significance here? And then the next place we have this exact same phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, is in Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, Moses is again in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and God comes down to Moses, and he descends in the cloud in verse 5. This is when he is recutting the covenant, recutting the tablets. And we're told, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He called, literally, it's the exact same phrase in the Hebrew, he called on the name of the Lord. Now, when you're looking at Abraham, and Abraham calls on the name of the Lord, then then some people look at that passage and they say, well, that means that he's praying to God. Uh, others will will come up with some other things. But here we understand what it means because when God appears to Moses, it's not Moses who's calling on the name of the Lord. It is God himself who is calling on his own name. God is calling on the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, the New King James Version captures the sense of the word and it should be translated that everywhere it is to make proclamation about the person of God. That is the, that's probably the best way to bring it over into English. It means to make a proclamation about the character of the Lord. We might say it is to teach about the essence of God. That's what this is talking about. And then... If we turn back just, well, in my Bible, if you just look a little further up the page, in verse 19 of chapter 33, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So when we look at the context here, what we're seeing is calling upon the name of the Lord has something to do with exposing and giving instruction about who God is in his character. He makes his goodness appear before Moses. And that is God proclaiming who he is. He is telling Moses who he is, and it includes his graciousness. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now we get into... Uh, Back down to chapter 34, verses 5 and following, as the Lord descends and makes proclamation 
and proclaims the name of the Lord. He further is explained in verse 6, and the Lord passed before him, that's before Moses, and proclaimed. So this is the content of his, of his proclamation. He's teaching about who he is. The Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Wow. That's what it means to proclaim the name of the Lord, to talk about, to teach, to make proclamation about the character of, of God, so the phrase "the name of" has to do with the essence of someone or the essence of God. Now that's that's very important because when we get over to Isaiah, we have a passage in Isaiah that talks about what the Messiah will be called. Now this isn't his his name that we would think of. This is talking about the name of Jesus, but it's talking about his character. And this is in Isaiah 9, 6, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name, that is his character, will be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, a father of eternity, actually emphasizing his eternal nature and prince of peace. So these are titles that tell us about the character, the person, of the Messiah, the person uh, of Jesus. And of course, in Matthew 121, um, Joseph is told by the angel that Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Yeshua, uh, which means to save from the verb to save, for he will save his people from their sins. So there are others in the Bible who are called Yeshua. Joshua is a form of that same name. But this is the name given to Jesus because he will deliver his, his people from their sin. So what we've seen in these first two points is that understanding this phraseology in a name has a lot to do with uh, the idiom and the thinking of Scripture that a name says something about the person. It's not nominalism where the name is just a tag and has nothing to do with what something is. It is showing that there is a relationship between the essence of something and the name that God gives it. And so this name uh, of God, name of Jesus, talks about his essence, his character. Now we come to the third point. We see that salvation then is based on something special, something specific about this Jesus. So we're talking about the Yeshua born to Mary and Joseph. We're not talking about Jesus the gardener. We're talking about this specific Jesus who has certain characteristics. Uh, in John one twelve, we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to who? To those who believe in his name. Now, that doesn't mean you believe that there's a historical person born to Mary and Joseph who grew up in Nazareth and you believe that his name was Jesus and he actually existed. It is to believe in the essence and the character, the person of this Jesus. So 
when John says this in John 1.12, that we are to uh, believe in his name, believe who he is, who he claimed to be, and what he did, that has already been set up in John 1 to 11. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learn right away that he is fully God. As we skip down to John 1 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We learn about the incarnation. So in John chapter 1, he's telling us who this Jesus is and that's what's meant by the phrase believing in his name believing who he is so you can't separate the work of Jesus from the person of Jesus which is why we have both the bread and the cup in the Lord's table the bread uh, references his character his person undiminished deity true humanity without any sin this is why it's unleavened there's no sin and then we have the cup that speaks of his work his death substitutionary death on the cross for us. So John 1 12, we're to believe in his name and then skip over a couple of chapters. John uses the same phrase again in John three eighteen. He who believes in him is not condemned. We're going to find out what it means to believe in him in this verse, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So the issue in salvation is faith, but it's faith in a specific person. Now, there's a lot of distortion about the person of Jesus in Christianity, in the history of Christianity. There are those like Arius in the uh, fourth century who did not believe in the uh, deity of Christ. He wasn't fully God. He was not eternal. God created him at some time in eternity past. So his Jesus is not a fully divine Jesus. So if you're believing on the wrong Jesus, then I'm not sure you're saved because you have to believe in his name, in who he is as revealed in Scripture. That doesn't mean you have to have a full-blown eschatology. I mean, excuse me, a full-blown Christology. It doesn't mean you have to believe everything that's revealed about who Jesus is. But you have to understand that he is the God-man and able to die on the cross for your sins. You can't believe, having been taught about Jesus as the God-man, you can't say, well, I don't believe he's God at all. He's a nice guy, but I'll believe in him. Because now you're not believing in the name of Jesus and who Jesus is biblically. So John goes on to say that you're condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so he adds something here. He's talked about Jesus as God in John 1, 1 through 4. In John 1, 14, he talks about, or John 1, 12, he talks about, no, John 1, 14, he talks about Jesus as the incarnate one, and now he has defined him in John 3.16, and now here as the only begotten Son of God. So that's the essence of who this Jesus is. That what That is what makes him a Savior. So salvation is based on this biblical Jesus, not some artificial Jesus that is redefined by some heretic. Now the fourth thing is that Jesus represented the character of God. We see this phrase, the name of God. So in John 10.10, he clearly asserts that he and the Father are one. There's this uh, 
metaphysical integral unity in the Father and the Son. They are of the same essence. They have the same uh, unity of, of, of essence and character. So in John 5.43, he says, I have come in my Father's name. So he's not just saying that he comes in uh, as a representative of the Father. He is talking about the fact that he is an expression of the character of God the Father. This is what we see in John 1.18, where John said, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Greek word there is exegeo, from which we get our word, our English word exegesis. So to see God, you have to see the Father. This is why in John chapter 14, when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room, and and Philip says, well, show us the Father. And Jesus responds and says, how long have you been with me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the expression of the Father's character and essence, and so that's what he is talking about here. John 17, in his high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, and what's interesting here is how many times he says something about God's name. He is talking about the character of the Father, the essence of the Father, who the Father is, the essence of deity. In John 17, 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. That's a specific reference to the disciples. He has manifested the character of God, the essence of God, to these men. In John 17, 11, John 17, 11, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, talking about these 11. They are in the world. He says, I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name. That is, they are kept on the basis of the character of God. This is profound. I don't think I ever saw this quite this way in the past when teaching about eternal security. Jesus uses this word, kept, which is a key word in understanding the security of the believer, but we are kept through God's character. It is his character, not our character. And so therefore, we're not kept by our perseverance. We're not kept by our uh, inability to, uh, to sin or commit certain sins. We are kept through the name, the character, the essence of God. It is his faithfulness. It's his immutability. It's his omnipotence. All of that is behind this. It's his sovereignty. He is the one who keeps us. Keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then in John 17, uh, verse 12, we read, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. So Jesus not only is praying to the Father that he would keep us through his name, he now says he, too, is involved in this keeping. That takes us back 
to to uh, John chapter eight when he talks about that we are in the grip of the Father, or John chapter yeah John chapter eight we're kept in His grip and we're kept in the grip of the Father. So he says, I kept them. How? In your name or by means of your character, which is his character because they're one. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That's Judas. That's why we know that Judas is not a believer. One of the reasons he's the son of perdition, he's lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. I always get irritated because somebody came along sometime back and started saying that Judas was a believer and then there's people who come along and say this and it shows that they don't understand theology, they don't understand the essence of God, they don't understand prophecy and they don't understand how to exegete basic Greek. It's just insane to think Judas and blasphemous to think that Judas was a believer. John seventeen twenty six he says, and I have declared to them your name. He has declared to them. This is a, a synonym for, for the word in, in the, the Hebrew to proclaim or to call on the name of the Lord. Now we have it in Greek. It's the same idea. And it states it that I have declared to them or I have taught them your character. I have taught them who you are. I've taught them about your essence. And I will declare it. So he says, I have in the past, and I will continue to do this into the future, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So again, we see the name has to do with the essence, the character of someone, and specifically God. Now, another thing that comes up in the Upper Room Discourse is what Jesus teaches about prayer. Because in the Upper Room Discourse, he talks about praying in his name. And it has become the practice of most believers, most Christians down through the ages, to state this by closing uh, closing prayer with the statement, in the name of Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus, something along those lines, almost as if if you don't say it, you're not doing it right. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about making some sort of statement that is like a sort of a magic incantation that whatever you pray for, if you close it out and say, in the name of Jesus, it's okay and you're going to get it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, making requests of God, and we're saying that this is in his name. It is on the basis of the character and essence of Jesus. We are bringing these petitions and intercessions to the Father on the basis of all that Jesus is, all of his character, who he is, and his plans and his purposes. Now, that just changes your whole sense of what these promises are all about. It, 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 he's saying that when we come into the Father, we're doing it on the basis of Jesus' character and on the basis of his essence. So in John fourteen thirteen, we read, whatever you ask on the basis of my character, on the basis of who I am, that ought to change our perspective sometimes, maybe what we pray for, but certainly on our understanding of how God will answer it. Whatever you ask on the basis of who I am as the perfect, immutable, righteous, 
spotless Lamb of God who gave himself for the sins of the world, the eternal second person of the Trinity who died for you. On the basis of that, you're bringing those requests. I don't know about you, but that just sort of expands my whole concept of prayer, and it's somewhat convicting. John 14, 14, he reiterates and says, if you ask anything on the basis of my character, on the basis of who I am, I will do it. John 15, 16, he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain or should abide or should continue, that whatever you ask the Father on the basis of who I am and my character, he will give you. And then in... Um, that's John sixteen twenty three on this slide, and then verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. This hasn't been the basis for our prayer because we're not walking with the Lord until after his period of incarnation and resurrection. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Until now you have not gone to the Father on the basis of everything that Jesus is, who he is, and what he has done. And then in John sixteen twenty six, in that day you will ask in my name on the basis of who I am and what I have done. And I do not say to you uh, that I shall pray the Father for you. And then in John fifteen twenty one, we are reminded again of that passage where we started about persecution. But all these things they will do to you because of who I am. That's the thrust of what he is saying, is that you're going to be rejected, you're going to be persecuted, you are going to be hated because of who Jesus is. It's not personal. They're not mad at us. They don't hate us. They don't persecute us. They're persecuting Jesus because they hate him for who he is and what he did. And that's what, how we should understand John fifteen twenty one. But all these things they will do to you because of who I am. And then we're reminded of a clear statement. This is a promise in Scripture. It is a clear universal statement by the Apostle Paul, who in Second Timothy three twelve reminds um, Timothy, yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't that just warm your heart? We have been fortunate in this nation. Since the beginning of the uh, colonization of the North American colonies by the pilgrims and the Puritans in the early 1600s, for the last 400 years, we have had a positive Christian environment where Christianity has been honored and respected and has been the dominant influence on the culture, not because the church set out as the church to change the culture, to make the culture, because that wasn't their viewpoint. It was because you had enough believers in the culture who were walking with the Lord to where the byproduct of their Christian life was a Christian culture. 
in, in, in many ways. doesn't mean it was perfect any more than any church is perfect, but that's what produced that Christian culture is a Judeo-Christian worldview, and it dominated until the midpoint of the 20th century. And since World War II, that has deteriorated. It really became clear by the 1960s, and it gets worse in each decade. It is deteriorating. Now we see bakers and we see wedding planners and we see all kinds of people who get persecuted. They have lawsuits against them. Uh, you have believers in other countries that have truly been uh, uh, places of blessing for Christians in the past, such as Canada and England, who are put in jail because they stand for the truth of Scripture and they understand reality because of the, of the revelation of God. And they're being persecuted, and this is increasing more and more. They are taken off of sports teams. They are removed from debating clubs. They have... All kinds of things happen to them specifically because they are a Christian and they are standing for the historic values of the Bible that have been the historic values of the United States of America. And this is only going to get worse. The trajectory for the last uh, 60 years continues in an unbroken downward spiral, and I don't see anything that's going to change that. And we need to be prepared for it. And the only thing that will prepare us for it is understanding uh, understanding Scripture. Now, that was all just kind of a rabbit trail off of uh, the main teaching that we've been going here. But I thought it was important to understand that, that this is the primary thing that Peter is talking about here, is suffering for Jesus' name. But what he is saying relates to all manner of suffering and adversity. The second thing that he says in these verses, as I pointed out, is that when the believer, believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus, it's a source of blessing which will reverberate throughout eternity. And he says here, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That means that it's going to go forward and have an eternal impact. Now, that tells me that what's going on here in Peter, both in 1 Peter 1 and here, that Peter's thinking not just in terms of the impact in time, but the impact in eternity. And we see that when we get into James, which we discussed last time. And I want to make some connections there, but... At this point, we're, I'm about five minutes or so early, but, but I don't want to get into this next section because that will take us about 25 or 30 minutes. And so we'll end, uh, end our study here, and next time we'll come back and we'll start with our review of what I covered last time in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and connecting that to First Peter, showing their, their parallels, and how that shows that what they're thinking about is the judgment seat of Christ that they are looking to the fact that we're going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ on the basis of how we handle opposition and persecution for Christ's sake, not just that, and not just that adversity, but all adversity, and that will impact our roles and responsibilities in the future. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study and reflect on these things that that the reality is that we are not of this world we are 
In it, we have a mission, and that mission is to make disciples. But those who are serious about being disciples are those who are serious about being Christ-like, being God-like, and that, we're told in 2 Timothy 3, uh, will lead to opposition, will lead to hostility, will lead to persecution. The only thing that gives us stability in this life with everything that is constantly changing is to be closely tied to you, connected to you, dependent upon you, enjoying that ongoing rapport and fellowship with you day in and day out. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to understand your word and the purpose for this this opposition and persecution as we go forward in our study. In Christ's name, amen.